Dear friends, I may welcome you to this uh, fourth section of the study of the Beatitudes. As we've seen in the previous sections, Jesus' teaching is both profound, yet simple. It is searching and yet comforting. So let's continue to seek the Lord's blessing on this portion of Scripture in our own hearts and lives. The question I want to begin with is the question that Jesus actually ends the sermon with. What is a real Christian? And am I one of those? Now, obviously, that question implies that there are Christians that aren't real. And that is definitely Jesus' own teaching at the end of this Sermon on the Mount in chapter uh, 7. And it's not an isolated fact either. No, listen to how Jesus speaks in Matthew 7, verse 22, and he states a startling truth, a surprising truth. He says there in verse 22, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? I'm teaching. And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then will I profess, Jesus speaking, unto them, I never knew you. No relationship between you and me. That's what it is. And depart from me, ye that work iniquity. That's a solemn conclusion. And we must conclude from that, that knowing Christian truth and teaching Christian lectures or being involved in Christian ministry are not the ultimate litmus test of being a genuine Christian. So then where do we go to answer this searching question? And the answer is back to the beginning of the sermon. Matthew 5, verse 3 to 9 in which Jesus describes the answer in the Beatitude Man. In that portion of Scripture, Jesus defines a true Christian, not by the amount of knowledge he has, but about by the experiential knowledge or awareness of biblical truth a person has in his or her own life. Now, what do I mean with an experiential knowledge or awareness? That is when the heart and the true facts of God's truth as given in both law and gospel affect us. They do something to us. They humble our heart. They change the direction of our life. When they inspire different choices or stir us up to unnatural action. Yeah, An example, experiential awareness is what our children learn when they still touch the hot surface of the stove you warned them about not to touch. Now, after that experiential touch, they have experiential knowledge of what hot means. And that will influence their choice 
their actions. So I hope the view that in the Beatitudes, God has given us the simplest, the clearest, the most searching, and yet also the most comforting answer on our question, uh, what is now a real Christian? The Beatitudes, dear friends, is like a spiritual anatomy of the born-again soul or the regenerated heart. So after this introduction, let's now take a closer look at the second Beatitude under the same two headings as we looked at the first. What is the mourning that Jesus considers blessed? Blessed are they that mourn. And secondly, why are such mourners blessed? For they shall be comforted. Blessed are they that mourn. What is this blessed mourning? Don't you see that Jesus' second beatitude stands again completely perpendicular to how we think or how we feel. We would call them that are happy, that are joyful, that are laughing, that are having a feast. We call them blessed. Generally, we like to shy away from sadness and mourning and grief. Though Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes, it's better to go to the house of mourning, to the funeral home. Let's be honest, who likes funerals? But our Lord Jesus has no problem stating in startling truth in Luke 6, verse 26, that kind of connected to this beatitude. He says, Instead of blessed, woe unto them that laugh now. They're only thinking about the laughing. For ye shall mourn and reap. And over against that stands these words of our second beatitude, blessed are they that mourn. So that is why I'm asking, and you and I to think about, what does Jesus mean in calling the mourners? blessed. Now he's not talking about the mourning and grief we feel when a loved one dies or when our business goes bankrupt or when I fail an important exam or miss a beautiful opportunity. Uh, to be sad and to be grieving in such a case is of course totally normal and acceptable, but not a reason to call anyone blessed. Would you ever think of writing a card with the words, quote, wow, what a blessed person you are for having lost your business or your spouse, unquote. You wouldn't ever think of saying something like that. So Jesus is also not talking about the mourning and the grief that we sense when our pride gets hurt, when we make a total fool of ourselves, or when you get exposed about dishonesty or theft. That is also grief. That's also a mourning. 
But that sadness is biblically called a worldly sorrow. And according to 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10, ends up in, in loss or in, in more death. Uh, simply, it will not bless us if we don't repent and return from the actions that may have caused that particular loss. Now, Jesus is talking about a different morning, friends. He's talking about a morning that flows from that first beatitude, that flows from a discovery when we are spiritually destitute in the sight of God to be and to do what we are meant to do and to be. And this discovery of our spiritual condition as spiritually lost or destitute or bankrupt kindles a mourning or a grieving of the heart about that very reality. We will feel sadness when we see how we have dishonored God, how we offended Him. Once we begin to realize how we have ruined his beautiful creation, and are continuing to do that in ourselves and in our world. We will feel sad when we notice that we don't reach the mark for which you were created, to glorify him, to praise him, to serve him. You will grieve when you begin to discover that everything you do is tinged with this self-idolatry, Pride enters so much in everything we do. It's about I, me, and myself so often. And seeing also how maybe our actions or our words or our attitudes offend or pain or wound others. No, that, that brings grief. That brings a sorrow over the sin, over the wrong that is in it. Sin always hurts us in three ways. It first hurts ourselves, it hurts others, and it above all hurts God. And it is this last aspect, particularly when we sin against a good doing, a wonderful, a lovely, a, a tender, compassionate, and almighty God, that is where this mourning is most felt. This is the mourning in which you see the weeping or the tears of love. And notice also in our scripture that he's talking about mourning rather than weeping. We all weep at times. How many of us have not gone to funerals where we are moved to weep as we see the loss of others and we share their loss to a certain extent? And, and, and these are emotional uh, uh, tears that we share with them. But yeah, let's be honest, they disappear rather quick. After we have gone away from the funeral and from that scene, uh, then we move on. But who don't move on? That's the ones who go home to the empty home, who face the empty place. Now, that is when weeping becomes mourning. Yeah, those who have buried their loved ones, miss their loved ones, they mourn. So I always say that mourning usually begins when weeping stops. And that it becomes a condition in which your inner person grieves over a loss. 
So that is then our next question. What is then the ultimate cause of this ongoing mourning? Blessed are they that mourn is ongoing. And what is that? It is that constant discovery that in me there is much that is not good. There's sins or sinfulness in a spiritually bankrupt condition that I face in various ways in my life, in my daily walk. And this realization brings sorrow, that brings a sadness, that brings a grief, that brings a mourning. And you go to the Bible, you find in Romans chapter 7, a man that I consider holy and good and sacrificial and, and, and a model of godliness, and yet he shares with us that continual tug of the old man within him, that in moments of weakness and inattention, despite his best efforts, continues to be there. And that makes this morning intense. For as we increase in the understanding of the raw facts of our fallen character, and we see the flaws in comparison to the great captain of salvation, Jesus Christ. And as we see his glory, as we contemplate on Jesus' glory, and we mourn, for we compare ourselves and we see envy of others in ourselves. We see discontent with the lot we are having, or we still meet with this inner covetousness or this self-exalting principle, being wanting to be on the first row and being on the pedestal. All of that is completely absent in the Lord Jesus Christ as he completely moved himself out of the picture all the time. Maybe you say, well, that doesn't quite square this whole talk with 1 John 3 verse 9. When John writes, whosoever is born of God does not commit sin, so why mourn? For his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. So how do we explain that with this ongoing mourning that Jesus speaks about? Well, that's a misunderstanding of John. John is not speaking at all about perfect, sinless perfection. He says, indeed, that new man doesn't sin. But there's still an old man living within us. And so John points that out in chapter 1, verse 8, when he writes to counterbalance the other verse, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So instead of what John is teaching, that someone who is born again will not live habitually and continually in the practice of a known sinful lifestyle or action. Though it is true and sadly true that even the best of God's saints are not immune to falling into grievous sins. So one more question then. Before we look at the comforts of this beautiful uh, beatitude, uh, in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10, the Apostle Paul writes about two kinds of sorrow. He writes about the sorrow of the world that leads to more loss, death, and the godly sorrow. Now, how can I be sure that my sorrow is this godly sorrow, this godly mourning? 
And the answer is, again, by the simple and the sensible test that Jesus gave us in a, a principle at the end of this sermon. By the fruit you shall know the tree. And that really also applies to the godly sorrow. Yeah, if your Bible is open to 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10 to 11, notice what he says. For behold, this self-same thing that ye sorrowed after a godly sort. Now what did that do to you? The fruits. First, what carefulness it wrought in you yeah, to make things right again. And secondly, what clearing of yourself. In other words, he says what you did to purge it out or to reform it. Thirdly, yea, what indignation. Indignation is a righteous anger against your own sin that you see and that you want to resist. And fourthly, yea, what fear. Fear of falling into sin again. And fifthly, yea, what vehement desire. The desire to be kept from the temptations. And sixthly, yea, what zeal not only for yourselves, but also for others. For we see sin as offensive to God, you love, and destructive to sinners, you will zealously do all to destroy sin. And then seventh and last, yea, what revenge, revenge against yourself for all what you have done wrong. And then he caps it off, he says, in all these things, ye have approved yourself to be clear in this matter, You've proven this godly sorrow. Now, a second evidence of this godly sorrow is that it, that confirms it to be genuine, is that it is not a sporadic sorrow. It's a sorrow that continues. It's a sorrow that goes along with you all your life. In some way, it also increases. And the reason is because the presence of this old nature of sin remains within us as a reality. And there's a battle between the flesh and the spirit. As I already hinted at in Romans chapter 7, Paul confesses his own personal struggle with this inner corruption. He says simply, I cannot master or drive this away forever as I want to. He groaned under that reality. He panted, as it were, to be delivered from it. Uh, the well-known words is, oh, the wretched indwelling sin. Who shall deliver me from this, from this inability to cancel out my evil desires and evil imaginations and my pride and my selfish motivations? Now, a third evidence that confirms this to be a genuine mourning is that we don't only mourn about the sins in ourselves. The real beatitude man mourns about the sins he sees in others. He sees in the world around him. He sees in the church to which he may belong. He sees even in the saints of God. That is what makes him also mourn. You say, why would anyone mourn over the sin in others? It's not their problem. That's, that's not their problem, it is because the sins they see in others are sins done against him whom we love. If someone would touch your spouse or your child and say bad things about them or do bad things to them, 
you would feel sorrow. You would mourn. You would be angry even, but also grieve because you love them. So it is when we see others sin, we mourn as well about that. And so then, in conclusion, why is this morning called blessed? Especially because it's kind of bitter. It's kind of a constant reality. Jesus said before, and as I have already pointed out, these Beatitudes are rather startling. Why call a mourner a blessed person? Now, the first is the same as the a previous uh, beatitude, this is in second evidence, confirming that there is a spiritual work of God going on in your heart. When we get a child born, we rejoice when the newborn child cries. Now, you ask the newborn, he doesn't feel well when he cries, but we feel joy when the baby cries because we know that means his lungs are working. Now, so spiritually, godly sorrow, spiritual mourning, is a sign of life. It's not the basis of salvation. It's not salvation in itself, but it's an evidence that God has begun a good work within you. For example, after God stopped uh, the very vicious and angry uh, Saul persecuting the Christians on the way to Damascus. He called Ananias to go there. And the Lord convinced this hesitating and objecting Ananias to go visit this man with one short clip about Saul. He says to him, behold, he prays. And so likewise, God could say, or could have said, behold, he weeps. He mourns about his sins. It is an evidence of a new life. Now, the second reason that Jesus calls these people blessed is because he says they shall be comforted. What God has begun, he will also finish. The tears he has caused to flow in opening our minds to this ugly and painful reality of sin he also will wipe away from our eyes by removing the cause of these tears and sorrows forever. That is sin. So how does God comfort us as we face this reality of our fallenness and of our inability and of our bankruptcy? And that's the precious work of the Holy Spirit. One of his names is the Comforter. And his work is to comfort sinners in this grieving process. And how does the Spirit comfort these spiritual mourners about their sins? He does that in three ways. First, by leading them to the promise and the truth of Jesus Christ. When the Holy Spirit enables us to rest our heart upon the gospel truth of the finished work of Jesus Christ, we experience the comfort of the rest and of the hope. And I see that his life that he lived as a sacrifice to God 
is a sufficient payment to the justice of God, which I cannot satisfy, and that he gave himself as the Savior and the substitute on behalf of sinners, and that he invites me to come unto him and to rest my life, my failures, my guilt, and everything on him is the promise that whosoever, no matter who you've been, no matter where you've been, that whosoever believe in him shall not perish. My friend, then I experience comfort. I experience a security and joy and in hope. And the second way that the Holy Spirit comforts uh, this mourner is when he leads us in the truth of the reconciliation and the favor with God the Father through Christ. There's nothing more comforting when a child that is hurting and feels sorrowful about what they've done to again feel the loving embrace of his father and his mother, reassuring them that all is well. And likewise, there's nothing more comforting than when in a sorrowfulness of your soul you begin to sense the loving embrace of God the Father and you sense the deliverance from the spirit of fear and bondage that held you in some despair, and you'll be able to say, Abba, Father, and rejoice in him. Now, ultimately, and thirdly, the fullest comfort is experienced when finally God will deliver these mourners from the presence of indwelling sin and out of the scene of sin when we are brought into the eternal glory. Nothing appears as a greater joy than to be free from sin forever, to never again having to face the reality of sin and evil in myself and others, in my thoughts and in my words. Never again to have to hear and to witness the utter disregard and dishonor done to the God we love. Now clearly, these comforts, they are precious and they are divine. It is truly God who needs to wound us to make us see the need for healing. And so he wounds us in discovering us to ourselves. But he heals us in discovering and bringing us to himself as he opens his heart in grace and love and mercy. So let us wrap this up with stating just one or two points in conclusion. First, don't make the mistake to think that these spiritual mourners are people that walk with long faces, are depressed and un unattractive people, depressed mindsets. No, the mourner can be a very jovial person optimistic person, positive person, and yet within their heart there's this constant tear, the inner tear about the sins that he has committed or feels striving within or sees around him. Yeah? For secondly, the closer you live to God and the closer you aim to live to his glory and the more you serve others, the more you will mourn 
over all that dishonors God either by yourself or by others. And therefore may it sound like an exaggeration. It is a poetic expression in Psalm 119, verse 136, where the author says, Lord, rivers of waters run down mine eyes. And why? Because they keep not thy law. And that then is the comfort that I may point to here at the end. There's a world coming. And this all this mourning will cease forever because sins have ceased forever. Revelation 7, 17 reveals that God shall wipe away all tears from the eyes of the redeemed. Not only the tears over our own actual sins, but there are also so many tears in eyes over the sins that others have done to you. There are now wounds and scars in your life that ooze with pain. Also the sins we see others do in the world will be all over forever. What a delightful prospect. For then we shall truly be comforted. So may God bless these words and make us all a source of a real blessing to others. Thank you very much.